Welcome everyone in another episode of Politics Today with James O'Hara. And this is a, a solemn show. Um, an event happened uh, the other day that obviously uh, made me have to come in and record another episode of this podcast. Because um, um, I try to do these as regularly as I can, but uh, every now and then I kind of lose my pace. But I, I like to go on to... Uh, especially make a recording when they, there's a big event going on or something important that needs to be discussed. And so today is one of those days where something important has happened. Um, and as most of you uh, who are listening have probably heard, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, passed away um, and has left open a seat on the uh, Supreme Court. So first, I'd like to uh, give a give my condolences to... Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her family, uh, she was a legal giant and a legal legend at our Supreme Court who shattered many different glass ceilings, so to speak, with uh, the different things that uh, cases she fought in front of the Supreme Court uh, for gender equality and other things. So her contributions to the American legal system and the American Constitution cannot be, uh, we can't. Uh, downplay them whatsoever. Uh, she's definitely a legal giant when it comes to these things. Now, with that being said, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, in her passing, leaves open, obviously, a huge controversy with what's going on in the court. Um, and as I come to record this, I, I, I feel that I had to come out and talk about this out of necessity. And uh, the reality is this should not be a big deal. It, it as being promoted as a big deal, but in all honesty, it really shouldn't be a big deal at all. Um, and that's because this is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and it's a vacancy that needs to be filled, and a person will be appointed by the president, and the Senate will vote to confirm or not confirm the person that the president picks. Um, there should be nothing controversial about that at all. I mean, that should that's something that normally happens. It's constitutional. It's laid out in the Constitution, the steps that are required. So nothing should be unusual about this. In fact, it shouldn't even be much of a news story. It should just be, oh, uh, we are nominating a new Supreme Court justice to fill uh, the seat of someone who, who had passed away. So uh, that should be normal. Uh, Supreme Court justices do... Uh, pass away. They serve lifetime appointments. So as a person who serves for life, they serve until they retire or they die or they can be possibly impeached, but that doesn't happen. Um, so uh, there's really no surprise that someone who's very elderly um, and has been on the Supreme Court for a very long time may pass away and their, their position will have to be filled. However, this one is becoming a big news story. And it's becoming a new, big news story because of two things. Um, one thing uh, is that it's an election year, and the other thing is that it's Donald Trump who's president. That's 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 the main reason this has become a controversial appointment, uh, whereas it shouldn't be. But every so far, every one of the uh, uh, Supreme Court appointments that Donald Trump has made while being president have somehow been controversial and huge news stories when uh, this is something that would happen all the time. And not to say that a Supreme Court pick is not a big story. Obviously, the Supreme Court and the people who are picked to be on it is 
they're very important. And so we pay attention when people are appointed to the Supreme Court because they have a lot of power to interpret the Constitution, make differences and changes to how our government's going to work. So they do have, uh, obviously, an important job within our constitutional system. So you can't go off and say that that's not an important thing um, and these people aren't newsworthy, so to speak. But in the case that it's newsworthy or in the way that it's newsworthy this time around is not because they're such an influential person. In fact, the person has not even been announced who the president is going to nominate. Um, although he does have a short list, he did uh, he did uh, you know show that the other day, um, saying these are the people he was possibly going to pick. He did announce he did want a woman to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so it would be a woman replacing a woman. Um, and he did have a list of women that he had chosen. Um, some are ones that he had already interviewed for the position when uh, he had appointed Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, that's Amy Coney uh, Barrett. Uh, she's on the list. And then also Florida uh, has, a, has a justice that's being promoted up there, uh, and that's Barbara Lagoa. So um, it's possible that uh, one of those two women could make it onto the Supreme Court. But that's not what the, the story's about. Um, the story... As most of you probably have seen, because if you followed anything on Facebook or anything on uh, any of the TV or Sunday shows today, uh, you would have saw that, oh, this drama comes out because it's so close to an election. And the only reason why it's such a big deal, according to the talking heads, is because of this quote-unquote McConnell rule that has been being bantered about. Um, and the McConnell rule, uh, for those of you who don't know, is back in 2016 when Barack Obama was president. Uh, in the last year of his presidency, Antonin Scalia passed away, and uh, Barack Obama moved to fill Antonin Scalia's seat. And he nominated a judge named Merrick Garland to uh, take that position. Uh, and then famously, or infamously, depending on what side you're on, uh, Mitch McConnell, who is majority leader of the Senate, uh, blocked the confirmation hearings uh, for Merrick Garland from occurring. Uh, basically saying he would not give Merrick, Carla, Merrick Garland a vote in the Senate. Um, and, of course, he was he was beat up for this in the media. Uh, he was called that he was violating the Constitution. Um, Barack Obama made a bunch of statements saying that, you know, it's the constitutional uh, authority and the constitutional uh, right to uh, nominate a uh, a justice for the Supreme Court when a vacancy is there. And then going on to say it's a constitutional duty for the Senate to take up his nominee and vote on them. So, uh, and every Democrat at the time came out saying the same thing, parroting that same sentiment, that it was a constitutional duty to uh, vote on whoever the president nominated because that's the president. Uh, meanwhile, on the, other, on the flip side of it, McConnell and the Republicans, they came out with a position saying that they would not vote on this person because it was an election year. And they wanted to wait till the next president um, was chosen by the American people before they would make a decision on whether to take up a nomination or not. So this is the quote-unquote McConnell rule that was put into place. And now we have an opposite scenario occurring. So we have a Republican president with uh, Donald Trump who has now had two Supreme Court uh, justice appointments. And he's got another one. It's seemingly on the way here. And so that will make it three. And it's an election year. And so uh, in this case, Trump has announced that he will uh, move with his 
nomination, and McConnell will has announced that he will move with a vote and vote on whoever the president nominates. And of course, now the everything begins, uh, all the fireworks start um, because you have this apparent. Uh, violation of the McConnell rule that McConnell had set up, and now every Democrat is shouting from the rooftops that this is a violation of everything and needs to be stopped, and McConnell needs to not take up any um, any vote until after the election. So trying to play his words against him in this scenario. So I've, of course, been following the situation pretty closely and following what people are saying. And uh, there's a lot of banter back and forth about this hypocrisy uh, if you watch Fox News Sunday today, Chris Wallace brought it up when he was interviewing Tom Cotton and said, you know, you made statements back in 2016 about waiting for an election. How can you then support it now? And how can you deal with that kind of how could you be that kind of hip, uh, hypocrite? And the reality is this is not hypocrisy. It, it, it'll be explained that way. You'll see dozens and dozens of quotes posted by people from Republican senators who had said the opposite um, from what they are saying now um, back in 2016. And in support of the McConnell rule, and now they're seemingly against the McConnell rule, and you go, oh, well, they're, you know, they're just hypocrites, and that's what this is. But the reality is it's not that situation. Um, it'd be like comparing apples to oranges, and if you want to use that analogy. Uh, that's what this is. So let's break down what the Merrick Garland situation was. Uh, in 2016, when the president, President Obama at the time, uh, nominated Merrick Garland for the seat, the president was in control of the executive branch. It's, he's the president of the United States. He was in his last year of a second term, so he cannot run again, cannot be president again. Um, he's basically what we would call a lame duck. Traditionally, a lame duck is a person who uh, has now been voted out of office or is no longer in office. The next president coming, that, that time between the election and the inauguration is the lame duck period. But the reality is the, the last year of Obama's um of Obama's term, his second term, he really is lame duck. He doesn't have any uh, real political power outside of what he can do as president. Um, and he did not have uh, control of the United States Senate. United States Senate was in the hands of the Republicans, who had won a had won a midterm election in 2014 and had taken back the United States Senate. So uh, he was not in a position as far as having political power or a mandate at all to um, have a his his choice of Supreme Court justice approved, um, which may or may not have even happened had it even gone up for a vote. Um, so that was a situation where there's divided government and a president appointing someone at the way end of his term. Um, it, he had nine months to go in his last year, but it's the end of his term. He can't run again. There's no chance he could be reelected. Um, and no one knows who the next president, of course, would, would going to be, whether it was going to be Hillary Clinton or was it, it was going to be Donald Trump. And you had a Republican-controlled um, Senate. Uh, and what happened was the president, of course, nominated someone for the court, which is his constitutional authority to do and constitutional, I would argue, constitutional duty to do. And then you have a Republican majority in the Senate who decided they did not want to take up his confirmation. Um, in Article 2, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution, it says that the president's allowed to uh, nominate someone for those uh, positions uh, on the Supreme Court, and it's up to the Senate to advise in consent on those nominations, which means they can also withhold their consent and not consent to those nominations. That's a power that they have. We have a thing called separation of powers in this country, and under the Constitution, we have checks and balances. This is an example of that 
being played out with Barack Obama. Now, there's a lot of reasoning given. There was a lot of political maneuvering given at the time, um, some of which can now be viewed as hypocritical, but I don't really see it as a hypocritical situation. You can play people's words against them all you want, but the scenario is different. Now we are in 2020, and we have a totally different scenario going on. We have a president who's only in the end of his first term, um, who's running for re-election, who has uh, a, the complete ability to win a second term. Um, and we have a Republican-run Senate still, uh, who is still in power in 2020, having just won another midterm uh, in 2018, reasserting that they are in control of the U.S. Senate, actually gaining seats in the United States Senate. So we have a situation where you have members of the both of the same party, and the Senate and in the presidency and a vacancy has come up on the court. So that's not the same as divided government. Uh, in this case, the president, just like Barack Obama did when he was president, is going to nominate somebody. That is his constitutional duty to do, same as Barack Obama's. Uh, there's no different difference there. Uh, and then you have a Senate who can choose whether to take up this nomination or not take up this nomination at this point. So we have a Senate that has decided they do want to take up this nomination and see if they can get this person confirmed. Um, now, the timing, some people have argued it's too quick, but the reality is you you can't even really argue that. Um, it was, I think, I believe 42 days uh, is how long it took to get um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg confirmed in the United States um, Senate. So uh, we have about 43 days till the election as of today. So the reality is the timing is about the same um, for the confirmation uh, for a hearing. Now, will that mean that person will get confirmed in that time? Who knows? It depends on who the president appoints and goes from there. So we don't know about those scenarios. But the reality is this is different. This is not the same as 2016. This is the way it normally should work and has worked within our system for hundreds of years. Literally. So this is not unusual that a president is going to appoint a nominee to the Supreme Court in an election year, and he's going to have a Senate of the same party confirm that person. Now, the opposite, what happened in 2016, that had not happened since the 1880s. The 1880s was the last time a Supreme Court nominee was uh, in an election year nominated by a president, and then the opposing party in the Senate took up the nomination and confirmed that person. That is abnormal. That is strange. That is not something that happens all the time in our system. And thus, when McConnell made this so quote-unquote McConnell rule, he really wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary or anything that strange. He was actually upholding precedent uh, for the last you know, 140 years almost. So uh, if he was to not take up a nomination now or take up a confirmation hearing now for a president's nominee of the same party, he would be breaking with precedent that this country has withheld for a long, long time. Um, that is the difference in this nominating uh, case. So you're going to hear a lot of things back and forth about um, whether – it's right for the president to appoint someone or whether it's right for the Senate to take up this thing. And most of the, the, the case against this is uh, simply political. It's 100% political. I mean, all these Supreme Court case um, or Supreme Court uh, nominations are political, obviously. It's the Supreme Court, um, which is ironically supposed to be the most apolitical of our branches of government. But obviously it doesn't happen. Um, but in this case, uh, what you're hearing on one side is people who are bitter. There are people who are afraid. 
Uh, you hearing crazy things being said by p- people like Congressman uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez about you know taking to the streets and and uh, you know fighting this nomination and things like that, which are just I think is madness um, in our in our country right now to be doing this thing to do that kind of behavior towards a, a president appointing someone, which is his constitutional duty to do. Um, it would be stupid to oppose this. Now you, you can not be happy with it. You can argue, hey, it's it's an election year, and we we should see how the election uh, turns out. That's fine. Um, that that is one possibility. If the president so wished to do that, the uh, the president could. Uh, there are, we have had presidents who have not chosen to appoint someone uh, close to an election. Um, famously, Abraham Lincoln had an appointment uh, where they had a Supreme Court justice, uh, Roger B. Taney. He uh, died while. Uh, Lincoln was in his first term, and it was October before the election, and so similar timing to now, and uh, President Lincoln decided not to do it. Um, Although Lincoln was also in the middle of fighting the Civil War and had other things going on of more importance than what was going on in the Supreme Court at the moment, so there really wasn't a huge motivation to get someone in there right away, Um, and he did withhold his nomination until after uh, he won a second term, and then that uh, December, uh, he went ahead and appointed Salmon B. Chase to the court, and uh, that he became Supreme uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in that position. So, and that was also a Chief Justice spot, a little bit different than Associate Justices, but still, we have we have had presidents who have withheld their nominations. So that's not like it doesn't happen. Um, but again, the president has a choice to do that. The president's decision whether he wants to. Uh, actually appoint someone or not appoint someone, that is the president's decision uh, to make. And the president, uh, we've had presidents who've done both things. So there's nothing unusual with the president actually nominating someone here. It's just a matter of that person might be a Donald Trump appointee. And having a Donald Trump appointee for people on the left and the Democrat Party is impossible and their heads explode, especially because of who that person is replacing. You know, when Anton Scalia died, there was this uh, drive by people on the left to get as as liberal of a judge in as they could to try to throw the court to the left side um, and the Democrat side. I think Barack Obama made a good choice with Merrick Garland. He was not a leftist type of judge, although some people may argue with me on that. I think he tried to find someone who is a a neutral, fairly neutral judge to replace Antonin Scalia, although that judge would definitely not have been as conservative as Justice Scalia. So anyone you would have appointed who wasn't as conservative was going to swing the court more left. Um, I think with uh, the justices that um, President Trump has put forward so far, he's picked up, he's put some pretty good ones in um, with Gorsuch and with with having um, Kavanaugh. I think those are good picks. And they have disappointed some conservatives, and they've they've gone both ways. I think they've been very level-headed and uh, neutral judges on the court. Um, with a new another judge being appointed, we may get more of the same, or we may get someone even more conservative. It, I, I hope we get someone more conservative, in my own personal opinion. But we'll we'll see how it works out. Um, but of course, anything that moves something in the conservative way has to be fought by Democrats tooth and nail. They cannot allow it um, because they say anything. Uh, that does that as a as getting to their power structure 
and limiting their power structure, and they don't want their power limited in any capacity. However, this is something that they have no say in at all. It's a Republican president. It's a Republican Senate. It's going to happen whether they like it or not. It's just the way our system works, and it's constitutional, and it should happen. The seat should get filled. That's the way it should be done. That's the way it has been done historically. That is the precedent that's been set. Although you will hear them try to say the McConnell rule is a new precedent, it is not a new precedent. The McConnell rule was actually upholding precedent of historical uh, Supreme Court nominations in election years, and this would also be upholding precedent of Supreme Court nominations uh, according to our history. So, this is not unusual. It should be a non-story, but of course it's not because whenever Donald Trump's name is mentioned in anything, it is a huge, huge story. So um, with that said, I wanted to uh, give my condolences to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, it is a big story that we uh, that she passed away and that that seat is now uh, open. Um, I know that liberals all over the nation tonight are not only mourning her loss, but of course are mourning now the the fact that they're going to lose another seat on the court um, to Donald Trump, who they hate more than anything else in the world. Um, But uh, don't worry, this is normal and it's going to happen and it's constitutional. And so there's really nothing more to be said about this. But we will watch and see who is nominated um, by the president. And of course, I'll take you and follow you guys through all the hearings, if there are any hearings, and the confirmation vote, of course, from there. Um, but I think it'll happen probably before the election. If not, the committee will meet and discuss things, and then a final vote will probably happen after the election on that. Um, so with that said, I wanted to move to another topic. And that was uh, the president gave a speech the other day. It's kind of been overshadowed now by uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg news because in our news cycle, uh, things happen so quickly uh, during these election years. It's, it's crazy. Um, but the president gave a speech the other day. It was Constitution Day. September 17th was. And uh, the president gave a speech. He was at the National Archives. Um, I thought the speech was very, very nice, uh, very patriotic type speech. I'm um, talking about the Constitution, our founding documents, um, you know, something these Supreme Court justices are there to interpret. And he brought up uh, something that touched me personally because uh, civics education is extremely important to me. And this was the idea of uh, his answer to the 1619 Project, um, which is being pushed into schools. Its, it's curriculum is being pushed into schools. Now, immediately the president got backlash for this. And the only reason why he got backlash for this is because of the current, well, because he's Donald Trump. That, that's the reality. If any other president would have said this, it would have been, um, it would have been rejoiced. Uh, it, it would have been honored and he would have, you know, had gotten accolades for it. And this president doesn't just like, you know, on a I'll get off on a tangent here, but you know, we have two Middle East peace agreements that have been huge. That should be, should have overwhelmed the news cycle with Middle East peace agreements that have been trying to get done for years. And now President Trump has pushed them through and got them accomplished um, with his efforts. And that should be all over the news. That's a crazy accomplishment. He's been put up now two nominations for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I mean, something that everyone, every American should be proud of. You didn't even hear anything about it. And and, and said CNN reported that people weren't wearing masks at the signing ceremony um, at the White House. And and that was uh, the big problem. Um, it was an outdoor signing, and no one was wearing masks, and, and that was the big issue. Not the fact that they're signing a Middle East peace agreement uh, between Israel and other countries, the UAE and uh, <laughs> other countries that, 
no one expected ever to happen um, in our lifetimes, and it has occurred. So uh, just just to show you that if it's Donald Trump, it's not considered important. It's 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 brushed under a rug, um, and anything to perpetuate this false narrative that he's a bad president and that um, you know he's evil and all these other things that they're trying to say about him, and to promote, of course, the Biden campaign and try to get Biden elected to the White House. That is the press's job right now is to get Joe Biden elected to the White House. So they're going to do everything they can possible to try to make that happen, including politicizing the the seat. Um, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg as much as possible um, and to try to overplay this idea that uh, they're violating McConnell's rule and McConnell's new precedent and that's unfair and all these things. Uh, remember that the Democrats are not owed anything in this situation at all. Uh, they are not in power. They do not make the decisions on how this works. The United States Senate majority is going to make that decision, not them. So uh, there's nothing they can do about it. Um, although, watch out because you'll see uh, things happen on the horizon here that you know really shouldn't be this political retribution. Nancy Pelosi's talked about impeachment again, and that's that's going to have its own problems. But I want to talk about the 1776 Commission. This is the thing that um, President Trump came out and announced that. He was going to put together as an answer to the 1619 Project, which if you listen to previous episodes of uh, my podcast, I did bring up 1619 Project before. It is a fake history. It is not a real history. It is a fake history. And I want to give you uh, read this tweet from Yamish Alcindor. She's a uh, NPR reporter. She's on PBS. She, she reports and she's in part of the White House press pool. Um, so she covers the president. And uh, right after this uh, speech that was given by the president about promoting patriotic education and establishing a 1776, uh, what he will call a 1776 commission, um, this is what she went ahead and tweeted out. Uh, she says, Trump just announced he will soon be signing an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education called the 1776 commission. It is unclear what that means, but he has been trashing the 1619 project, which aims to educate the nation with facts. With facts, she says. When the author of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, when pressed by historians about the errors in her, in her project, in her, in her op-eds in the, the 1619 Project that she has written, she responded that it isn't a real history, and that it's a remaking and a reimagining of what history is. Now, for, if you haven't listened to my previous podcast on the 1619 Project, what it is is a teaching of American history, that American history is based in slavery, and that our founding was really 1619, which is the first year that slaves were brought to the uh, Americas, to Virginia, the Virginia colony. And that ever since that point, America has been built off of slave labor. And therefore, uh, slavery is at the root of everything that is American and has uh, you know, tainted American history throughout its time. And so nothing that has been accomplished by Americans um, can really be said that it's, it's truly American because it's been tainted by this uh, scourge of slavery um, throughout our uh, existence and our founding, which is... So ridiculously false, it, it it doesn't normally would not even wouldn't even entertain a response by an, an actual intelligent person. But the times we're living in now, it does need a response. So 
the the real issue here is not that the 1619 project is completely false. I mean, it is. It's been admitted that it's false. Um, it, it takes no account into actual American history and what was going on. It, it does not talk about the, you know, it talks about the founders as these bad guys who were all racists and all, um, you know, slave owners and all those things, even though they weren't all slave owners. Um, and in fact, they fought very, very hard to try to not include the word slave in the U.S. Constitution so as the country would not be founded upon this issue of slavery. They all, every single one, except for a, except for actually a very minor group, um, believed slavery was going to end, uh, and they believed it was not a sustainable institution and would end relatively soon uh, after the um, the establishment of the United States. Of course, they were wrong. Uh, they did not predict the future, which they, I guess their crystal balls weren't working um, that day when they wrote the Constitution and their sla- the slavery um, provisions like the Fugitive Slave Law and things like that, which, by the way, never actually say the word slave. Um, but anyways, they were wrong. Obviously, it did spread, and it was a huge problem in the United States, of course, eventually leading up to a civil war in which 600,000 Americans would lose their lives um, fighting over pretty much that central issue of slavery. Um, and that obviously is a huge part of American history. So not to you know try to undermine slavery and its impact uh, in the United States in our history is obviously a massive part of it. Did people get wealthy off of slavery? Yes, they did. They, they definitely did. Um, people benefited a lot from this. It was an economic system um, in which many different parts of the economy did benefit from. But the idea of you can sit there and say, that, oh, slavery is the reason for everything, and that uh, if it wasn't for African slavery, the United States wouldn't have rose to prominence and rose to where it was, um, and, and it is now, is, is just completely asinine. Does it take into just any modern thinking of uh, what U.S. history is? And, and that's the point. They don't want to, if you read the 1619 Project articles, they do not, they only focus on a central issue of slavery essential issue of mistreatment of African Americans, uh, Jim Crow and the problems there. But it doesn't mention other things like the fact that, all right, up to the 1860s or so when, when slavery is abolished, um, immigration into the United States is not as big as it becomes in the early 1900s. I mean, the late 1890s and into, into the 1900s is a huge a gigantic flow of immigrants into the United States, and the this buildup of of immigrant labor that comes into the United States that pushes the United States beyond anything any other nation is uh, capable of is a huge part of the American story. None of those immigrants benefited from slavery; they didn't. They came here poor. They came here from countries that did not have slavery. Um, that didn't have the same legacy of chattel slavery that the United States had. Um, however, they were the huge contributing force um, into some of America's massive economic uh, prosperity in the early 1900s. I mean, America didn't become a world power um, really until World War II, but World War I was was really the first step of America coming into the world stage and being able to say, hey, we're, we're actually you know a big country that can handle things like going to war here. Um, and even then, we were looked at by countries like France and, and Britain as uh, just a tool to try to end the war for them, right? We, we, we send over hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and they're basically utilized by France just to, to plug the gaps in their own, own line and relieve their own troops who have been fighting for four years. And 
you know, we were kind of looked at as, okay, what, what are you going to do? Uh, you guys aren't capable of doing this. And, of course, we prove ourselves and gain a lot of respect uh, in World War One, And then, of course, World War Two is really when the United States becomes a, a real-world power. Um, and we are we become what we call the hegemon on the world stage um, is after World War II. But all that's built on mostly immigration into this country um, by people from, of all different descents, um, which had worked to make this country great. But that's not mentioned at all in the 1619 Project. Instead, it's no, it's slavery is the only thing. Um, it's what this country was found upon, the only thing that makes this country great. Uh, it, or only th- it's not making this country great, according to them. But slavery is the this this thing that was the economic boon to the United States, um, and thus everything we've got after that is because of slavery itself, um, which is is clearly false. It doesn't take into other aspects of American history. American history is very much multifaceted. There's a lot of different things that happen. Of course, world history plays into it. Um, so you cannot sit there and say one thing contributed to something. This country is built on this, not built on that, all sorts of things like that. But the 1619 Project tries to do that. It frames things in an ultra-racial terms um, to make America the bad guy and everyone else, you know, the world, I guess, the good guys. But um, the, the fact is what the president spoke out against was against this being put in as education in our schools as curriculum which the 1619 project is it's getting it's gaining support they happily say they're getting put into classrooms as a curriculum that's being taught but if you're teaching that curriculum you're teaching something that's not true you're teaching something that's clearly false and been proven false and then the people refuse to change it simply because they felt that in this uh, highly racialized environment that we're in that they can gain some traction with this and get their their extreme view getting pushed into classrooms and educating people um, that are ignorant to the facts. The reality is when you educate students, these students don't know anything. They're, they're learning for the first time, right? They only take in what's around them, and they're pulling it in, and then they regurgitate it back out. But they're learning. They're, they're, they're building that knowledge. And if you're going to build their knowledge on something that's false to begin with, replacing those ideas with actual correct history becomes even more difficult because what a student learns first is is what they're going to hold on to. It's going to be the basis of their education. And if you try to go in there now and try to fix those things, that's where you be, where things become a problem. I mean, that's one of the big things in colleges. Is colleges, students are, are learning things for the first time that they, they didn't know was happening. And, and sometimes it's a good way because you're, you're breaking a student down and saying, hey, there's there's more things to this than you originally know. But the reality is we, we build on history. You've got to learn the basics. The basics don't change. Uh, basic historical facts, events, dates, those all happened. Um, you learn them. You learn, uh, you learn the basic version of them. And then, of course, as you pursue your higher education, you get deeper into those issues. And you learn more, and then you can build off of what you had. Um, You know, if you know that uh, at Harper's Ferry, John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry, and John Brown was caught and then, of course, uh, hung for treason against the United States for doing so. Um, Most of us learn that in high school. We learn about John Brown. We learn about this raid on Harper's Ferry, um, and that's the end of it. You don't learn more into it that, you know, John Brown is part of this you know, bleeding Kansas, 
um, time about the Missouri Compromise and and that he was going uh, or the Kansas Nebraska Act rather, and that he was going to uh, you know he fought in Kansas against these. Um, he was an abolitionist who fought against slaveholders and then took this position. And did you know that it was actually Robert E. Lee uh, who was sent in uh, with the uh, U.S. Army uh, to go and get. Uh, and take Harper's Ferry back um, from John Brown, and then he's the one who, of course, captures him, and then he's brought in and hung. You know, all those things are, you know, you learn the basics. There was an attack on Harper's Ferry. Then you learn the rest of it, and that's how we, we teach history, and that's the best way to teach history. But teaching people the fake history first, then trying to go in and correct that kind of history makes it even more difficult. So the 1776 Commission and the, and the point of it, which hasn't been formed yet, but the idea was patriotic education. And almost immediately you had tweets like that from Yami Shalasindor trying to say he was not talking about facts um, and trying to say the 1619 Project was factual, which just shows how ignorant she is to what the reality is uh, and maybe what her historical knowledge really is, um, which isn't much, uh, apparently, from what she's been saying. And then the idea that somehow promoting patriotic education is a horrible idea, and all of a sudden we started things on Twitter like Hitler Youth was trending and talking about fascism and how the president's a Nazi. That's insanity. That is, that the people who say those things have a mental problem. They are they are not mentally well. Um, everything the president does cannot be fascism and being a Nazi. I mean that's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, patriotic education and teaching people about the United States Constitution and how it works is not being a Nazi. Um, it's, far, it's the farthest from doing that. Uh, we, our system works because we have an educated populace that understands how the United States was founded, understands what our founding principles are. Those are the principles that are laid out in the Declaration of Independence, um, that all men are created equal, and that we have unalienable rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and that we have the control over our government. It's consent of the governed and not the other way around. Uh, and then it gets embodied in the Constitution into law that these are the values that the United States uh, has and stands for. And these this is the system in which our voting works, how our government is supposed to be set up. And it relies on people to know those things. And the more people know about their government and how our system works, the more the better representation we're going to have because we are a republic, which depends on representation. And without that, then the system falls apart. So I think the 1776 Commission is a wonderful idea. I think returning U.S. education in our schools to uh, a patriotic front and teaching them the greatness of America is important and should be done. Uh, we need to have a real basis of education and history put into children's minds so that they can build upon it and then if they want to question things and how things happen they can do that and then they have a basis to question from but if you teach them the wrong thing to begin with then you have an uphill battle just trying to teach them what the real history was and so anytime something is disproven and shown to be a fake history which is what the 6019 project is it should be immediately thrown out and chastised and said that this is not something we want to teach in our schools and should be completely trashed and be gone so the fact that the 6019 project even still exists is a problem um, in our system so uh, that's what i had to say on the 1776 commission uh, i think it's really important that people pay attention to what's going on and what's being uh, taught in our schools and that extremism 
and radicalism that is not American or against our American system needs to be rooted out. It, it cannot be allowed. It cannot be tolerated. Uh, we need to teach kids real history uh, and build off from there. And we really need to start teaching adults real history, too, because perhaps many of them, like Yamiche Alessandor, haven't gotten a, a real history. Uh, important a real education uh, of historical importance so um, those things need to be said so uh, in the end i'll leave you guys with the fun fact of the day it is september 20th as i record this and on september 20th 1973 we had the battle of the sexes and that was a tennis match famously um, with billy jean king and bobby riggs and it was a uh, nationally televised event it happened at the uh, astrodome um and in Houston, and uh, it was a huge deal. It was broadcast on TV. Over 50 million people watched it, and it was um, a real sign for women's rights and women's equality. Uh, in 1970s, um, Billie Jean King, of course, famously, uh, you know, she couldn't even get a credit card because she was a woman, and this ties in a lot with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg because these are things Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for uh, while she was an attorney and then eventually a judge and justice on the Supreme Court, and, you know, the famous uh, battle of sexes with um, Billie Jean King is that she, of course, Bobby Riggs was a, a, a real chauvinist, uh, didn't think women belonged in tennis, and of course, Billie Jean King would play, uh, you know, planned to pay, play a match against him to prove that women could, and it was a huge deal. Um, they came out on chariots, and she came out being like she was a, like a, a queen of Egypt and all these things. Um, so it was a big spectacle on television. But, of course, Billie Jean King beats him in three straight sets. And uh, beats Bobby Riggs, who, uh, even though he was much older than her when the match began, he was a legend in tennis. And Billie Jean King proved that you can, you know, that women can compete on this high level and that women's tennis needs to be taken seriously. Uh, so, of course, Battle of Sexes 1973 happened on September 20th. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, a great career she had. She fought for women's equality, women's rights, and uh, something Billie Jean King, of course, would be proud of. Uh, and really a sign of how far we have come from even 1973, which was not very long ago, to today, and how far um, the battle and fight for equality um, has gone since then. And although we may still have farther to go, every, one, every day, every year, it's a step in the right direction, and anything that helps us live up to the original founding creed of this country, that all men, and now, of course, women, are created equal and that everyone deserves equal justice under the law. And these are the things that we value. So uh, I'd like to end the podcast on that. And uh, if you have, of course, any kind of questions or any kind of comments, uh, Politics Today on Facebook. Um, it's politicstodayjro at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email. Uh, go ahead and like my page. Share this podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify now. Uh, so feel free to do all that and bleepy bloop it and send it out to everybody you know. Um, and I appreciate everybody for listening. Thank you very much. Have a good night.